Welcome to Challenging Paradigm X. I'm Xerxes Washpengeer and in my podcast I interview people who challenge the status quo. Can we have artificial intelligence without consciousness, creativity or mindfulness? Are language and music the only things that humans do better than any other species? And what would that mean for the development of artificial intelligence? Can we program ethical rules into the AIs? Or can we only teach them like we teach children? And if so, what would that mean for us? As societies? As humanity? Do we need to rethink the founding principles of society in an AI era? Today my guest is Dekai. Dekai is one of the world's leading experts in the field of artificial intelligence and one of the early pioneers of machine learning and that paradigm shift in AI. For his work on AI, machine learning, machine translation, as well as natural language processing, music technology and computational creativity, he was recognized as one of the 100 top influential figures of Hong Kong, where he is also professor of computer science and engineering at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Furthermore, he is a distinguished research scholar at Berkeley's International Computer Science Institute. Apart from that, he is a musician and is involved in the field of social impact to enhance the dialogue between different cultures. This is also reflected in his work. He used his intercultural skills and knowledge as well as his deep understanding of music and creativity to develop the world's first AI for web translation that led to the Google, Yahoo and Microsoft translators. And for his work on AI ethics and society, Dekai was one of eight inaugural members selected by Google in 2019 for its AI Ethics Council. So if you're interested in artificial intelligence from Dekai's cross-disciplinary and paradigm-shifting perspective, stay tuned. Hi, my name is Xerxes, and today I'm here with Dekai. It's good to have you here, Dekai. Great to be here, Xerxes. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. So, yes, could you please introduce yourself? Who are you? What do you do? Well, so I'm on the one hand, I'm, I'm an AI professor. If you know things like Google Translate or Yahoo Translate or Microsoft Translate, I pioneered those sorts of things. I, like, I built the first web translation AI and developed a bunch of the machine learning foundations for them. I also work on music technology, AI for computer music and computational social science. It's one of the people who sort of, you know, pushed machine learning approaches into the field of AI at a time 30 some years ago when the field was dominated by what we call good old fashioned AI, which is rule based, you know, manually coded logic based systems that were really impossible to scale up. We, we fought this battle to like move away from logic, stop trying to manually model the world by writing everything we knew about the world by hand and instead model the mind which is not a logic machine 
you know, model these massively parallel distributed units that fire different activation levels at each other. And from that complex system emerges uh, learning behavior. And so, you know, I've, I've been pushing on that the whole time. I pretty much focus on things that have to do with getting cultures to relate better to each other, to understand each other better. That extends also to my work as a musician, having formed one of Hong Kong's world music groups, as well as my social impact work, where, you know, fighting discrimination and looking to enhance dialogues between different cultures and, and looking at ways to decrease the alarming amount of polarization, divisiveness, fear, and hatred that we're seeing both in, in, in many countries domestically as well as globally in the geopolitical situation. Okay, great. And please tell us, why do you do what you do? You know, I think I've had the privilege of, of being shown a lot of the world since I was a child. My, my parents took us all over the U.S. I was, you know, they, they, were, they had come to the U.S. as teenagers from war-torn China and, and Hong Kong and Japan and, and so on. And they landed in the mid, the, literally smack in the middle of the country in St. Louis, you know, which is, mm. if you know, it's, you know, on the Mississippi River, which is the, separates the East and the West in the U.S. and on the Mason-Dixon line, which separates the North and the South. So literally right in the middle. And I grew up in the Midwest heavily in, in Illinois the next state over. It was very mind-opening to see the cultural differences, how they weighed on perceptions of people. And then, and then my parents took us not only to almost every state in the Union, but to other countries. And you know, we saw things about the developing world that were very, very different. We saw extreme poverty. We saw things that made me question from an early age whether all of the assumptions that were mainstream around where I was growing up maybe were relative to the environment, the you know the the economic level, the education mm -hmm. level, and of course the cultural background that you have to deal with. And so I think that these are things that, as we've seen in the last decades, have le led to enormous stresses in in humanity. And that has really driven me, I think, to look for ways that between the technology and, you know, the arts, music, and just dialogue, social um, dialogue, that there are things that are urgent upon those of us who are able to, to look at how we can enhance, how we can really ramp that up so that we don't end up with humanity literally tearing itself apart and destroying itself and the planet in the process. So I'd be very interested uh, to see your perception or perspective on like what uh, influence does music have in your life? And specifically, do you see a connection to your work in artificial intelligence and how It lets you perceive artificial intelligence? Oh, very definitely. You know, what the thing about intelligence, human intelligence, is that language and music are basically the only things that we humans do better than, than other species, right? I mean, we don't, 
we don't run faster. We don't fly. <laughs> We're not very good at climbing trees anymore. We're not stronger. We don't see more sharply. We don't smell more sharply. We're pretty lame as a species, except for our unique abilities in language and music. And the thing is that, you know, really, music was the foundation of a lot of human language abilities. Our, our ancestors were singing before they were talking. And, you know, early speech probably evolved from using our song abilities to be able to represent ideas about the world. And once we evolved stronger linguistic abilities, then we turned around and we applied those to music. And so we've been uh, developing more sophisticated types of music using musical languages. So this has like co-evolved through you know, a million years. And it leaves us with brains that are supremely evolved for music and language. And, and those fundamental building blocks underneath it is how we implement intelligence. And therefore, studying music is heavily related to studying language. It's just, you know, the same areas of the brain that are used, except that music is activating many of them in parallel. It's, it's like exercising those linguistic abilities on steroids. And the kind of creativity, the kind of improvisation and expression in traditional music teaches us a lot about how the mind uh, creates, how, not just how does the mind interpret new things that it's never experienced before, but also how it learns and then is able to generalize so that it can take what it's learned previously, but then express new things in real time. Not in the sense of this, you know, very recent aspect of, of music, especially Western European symphonic tradition, where, you know, some, somebody writes out a complex score and then you have trained musicians that just do nothing but they read and execute that score. That's actually a very artificial recent form of music that only happened in the last few hundred years. Traditionally, music is, is improvisational and it has conventions, but it's not the same twice in a row. And you have a conversation between the musicians who are typically sitting there bouncing off of each other, just like you and I are talking. That's, that tells us a lot about how the brain works, about what kinds of facilities there are to, with which to learn and to express and to create. Okay. And I had the thought now while you were talking, and uh, maybe it's uh, uh, far off, but do you think that artificial intelligence, the way it has been created the last couple of decades up to the time where you will know better than me uh, when the point was, if it's at all the case, deep learning was introduced, that there was maybe a switch when you compare it to music, to the Western type of music? the artificial intelligence before and got in has somehow through the work of certain people including you somehow to this more linguistic improvised creative type of approach how to program artificial intelligence was there such a change at all when you look at deep deep learning for example or other stages in the, the development of artificial intelligence yeah, yes and no i mean I think the major change was what I was referring to earlier when we moved from rule-based, logic-based systems that were coded by hand so that all the knowledge of the system was written by humans rather than learned by the machine. Yes. I know, and then I know. subsequently the machine learning models. 
the in terms of the deep learning models, you know, there are one family of machine learning models. And to be honest, I started playing with what we now call deep learning in the late 1980s, early 1990s. In, in fact, my my postdoctoral year in 1992 at University of Toronto, I spent happily playing in Jeffrey Hinton's lab. Jeff is the granddaddy of deep learning. And I was literally working on what we now call deep learning models at the time. But there are also many other machine learning uh, approaches. Deep learning is not the you know, be all end all. Even Jeff Hinton himself has uh, said on the record, I think we need to throw it all away and start from scratch. And, you know, it's just, it's a phase. So there's a lot of media hype that's fairly shallow about deep learning these days. Those of us who are really working in AI research have already moved on to, you know, that's one, one of the tools in our toolkit, but like we're looking at deeper problems, like the issues that uh, I've spoken about on modeling actually awareness mindful ais you you can't really have an ai that is just mindlessly doing deep learning all that is is glorified regression and it's not aware of what it's it's doing that that's a very important distinction between human level intelligence and sort of instinctive automatic reflexive types of learning that other species also have so I think when we look at music, you get the same dichotomies in music. So, you know, for those of us who grew up playing musical instruments by, you know, I, I don't even remember not playing. <laughs> my, my, my family tells me that I was picking out melodies when I was two years old on the little pianos, right? And so no, nobody had taught me to read music. Nobody had taught me technique. This was just something that you learn by by this sort of associative pattern recognition, the same way kids learn language. Nobody says to a kid, hey, you're not allowed to speak until I've taught you the rules of grammar and how to read. And, and then once I've done that, then you're only allowed to say things that are when you're reading from the page written by some poet. You know, it's, it's done automatically un, below the level of consciousness. As you're, as you're hearing someone speak, you're not saying, oh, Hearing, that was a verb. Someone, that was the agent that was speaking. I mean, you're not doing that. Uh, it's all happening at the unconscious uh, level. And so it's very much the same thing with music, is that if you've learned music in this natural way, as opposed to the recent artificial way, then that teaches us a lot about how the, how the mind works. But at the same time, once you've done that, and you start creating, and you start thinking, Hmm, how would I compose a piece, you know, or if I'm a DJ, how would I like construct this track, right? Now you're applying the linguistic side. Now you're like really thinking the way that a poet would think. And so you've got all those different types of mental processes going on. And studying music helps us also to understand that about the nature of human intelligence. Okay. And uh, the way artificial intelligence is programmed today and the research that's done today goes also more into this direction? I think it's going to increasingly. It is not very much out in the popular you know, awareness, popular press yet, but people who are deep in the, in, in, you know, the forefront of AI research are, are thinking about these problems and are making proposals. You know, our, our lab is certainly integrating 
both the sorts of automatic unconscious, you know, fast pro fast pattern recognition and associative types of processing with more mindful styles of of consciously controlled understanding of what it is I'm doing. And how can we imagine this? I mean, what does it mean consciously controlled, for example? Well, so, you know, there are psychologists for many decades now have been studying the differences between automatic mental processes and controlled uh, or conscious mental processes. Um, you know, Danny Kahneman, who, who wrote the bestseller Thinking Fast and Slow, um, uh, calls it system one versus system two. And so there's a, an enormous amount of empirical data on the characteristics of system one or automatic mental processing versus system two or controlled conscious mental processing where you're aware of what you're thinking. You know, like, so, so the thing is that if you're able to introspect, if you're able to describe your thoughts, that is conscious controlled reasoning. But it, you know, something like, The fact that you're not thinking, oh, hearing was a verb, right? That that's not conscious. That's unconscious processing. Or you know, if I ask you, for example, like, do do you know what the difference is between walking and running? I think so. Uh, walking, what's the difference? Well, I mean, the way you ask it, I wonder if I perhaps don't know. But walking is a slow type of movement compared to running which is a fast type of movement sure that's true but but you also like you've probably seen some of these competitive speed walking races right so they're yeah. walking very fast right and you can run slowly you can jog yeah, right? yeah so like there is actually a technical difference now let me just make sure you do know how to walk right yeah and you do uh, know how to run right yeah <laughs> um, yes yes And yet you don't know what the difference is. The difference is that if you're running, both feet leave the ground at the same instant. Mm. Now, you know, most of us know how to walk. Most of us know how to run. And most of us have no idea that that is the difference. That is unconscious mental processing. Okay. But now that we've talked about this, now you have conscious knowledge of it. Okay. And does it mean there is a way to program artificial intelligence in the way that it becomes conscious about the processes? Yes. Yeah. That, that, is, yeah. that is exactly what needs to happen for AI to actually reach human level. Okay. Well, I mean, that I also believe. But do you believe it's possible? Sure. Because some people say it's not possible. Well, I think people get confused about what it means, right? Because as soon as you drop in a word like consciousness, I mean, you know, there's like nine different definitions of consciousness, right? I, and and they all depend on on assumptions, right? There's a some small group of core axioms that you have to take on what you mean. Like, first of all, you know, are we talking about... Uh, mind-body dualism, right? So are we looking at issues of the soul, or, you know, which, which a lot of people fold into what they are casually thinking consciousness means. But in the sense that I'm talking about this, 
it is uh, the consciousness that I'm speaking of is empirically measurable. So we're not attempting to say things about the metaphysical, the soul, but we're looking uh, at things that you can actually read from brain scanners, from fMRI or EEG. We're looking at speed issues, right? So there's a lot of experimental psychology, cognitive psychology that you can do with everything from eye tracking to, you know, just um, how fast people can process things, what kinds of mistakes they make, right? And so there's a lot of empirical stuff that you can observe about unconscious versus conscious mental processes. Okay. All right. And how do you see the connection between consciousness and intelligence? And maybe before you tell me that, could you tell me what your definition of intelligence is? Well, so there are different approaches toward defining intelligence. And, you know, one of them in the style of Turing, of course, is more of a behavioral definition. So if it if it looks like it looks like a dog and it smells like a dog and it talks, <laughs> walks like a dog, it probably is a dog. <laughs> so that's basically the style of definition Turing had in his famous Turing test. I think from a science point of view, that is a reasonable definition. If you can drop uh, an AI into a new situation that it's never experienced, if it's had the same kinds of environmental upbringing as a human, And if it reacts the same way as a human, then you've produced a human level AI. And again, not ascribing any qualities of metaphysical qualities of having a soul to that definition, but that would have achieved human level AI. And beyond that, if it becomes more powerful in its learning capabilities or uh, its reaction speed, then it becomes, starts becoming a super intelligence. Okay. And in the context of creativity, do you see one there as well, a connection between intelligence, consciousness, and creativity? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I think creativity is, uh, imp it's, it is, it is basic. So, so there are a couple of very common cliches uh, that you hear as soon as uh, people start talking about AI casually, which is that, oh, oh yeah, you know, These machines are getting incredible, but they'll never be able to have human qualities like creativity and emotion and exactly. those sorts of things. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and the thing is, I think that that's actually misleading. So when it comes to, well, when it comes to emotion, that is actually simpler, more primitive and easier to model than, than, you know, truly intelligent process, human intelligent processes like language understanding. Anybody who's had a dog uh, knows that emotion is very basic. You don't need human level intelligence to have emotion. It's far easier to, to model that. It's just, you know, people didn't start doing it until recently, but it's easy to do compared with a lot of other things. And as for creativity, it is pretty much impossible to have any kind of intelligence without creativity. You cannot have a learning system without creativity by definition. Okay, so, so like, what does it mean to learn? It doesn't mean to memorize. Memorization requires no creativity, that's true. But to actually be intelligently learning is not just to memorize like a database does, it's to have 
been exposed to a few examples, but then you leap to generalizations and you are making inferences in situations you've never encountered before. That, by definition, is a creative process to be able to speak a sentence that in a new situation like we're doing now that we've never uh, done before is requiring creativity. It's, these are fundamental building blocks of machine learning. And you cannot have intelligence without those creative building blocks. So I think, you know, it's a comforting myth for a lot of people that, oh, machines can't replace humans because we're uniquely creative and, you know, emotion and all of these things are, you know, cannot be replaced. It's a sentimental notion that doesn't have any scientific basis. And so I, I understand very much the human yearning for that, but I think we need to redirect that human yearning to how do we with how how do we with with positivity, with you know human the best of the human qualities for creating empathetic societies deal with the fact that these new machines are already creative and are already very much especially in social media, reflecting emotion. How, you know, th those things are altering our societies in drastic ways if we look at the kinds of polarization that I was talking about at the outset. And the reason that so much of my work in the last several years has been directed in AI ethics and AI and society is because of the fact that AI-powered Social media and, and media and search engines are ripping apart our societies as an unintended consequence of the fact that they're actually amplifying all these natural human evolutionarily hardwired qualities that cause us to be biased, to believe things that we probably shouldn't believe, and to react in ways that are irrational. Because in the old days, your tribe would be, you know, uh, killed by another tribe if you didn't react that way. But in a modern era where weapons of mass destruction are being democratized uh, so that, like, ordinary people can be carrying really, really dangerous weapons of mass destruction, it's no longer tenable. It's no longer survivable for society to be that way. Right? And so... We need to figure out how to redirect those sentiments about human emotions, about taking care of each other and love and, and understand how in our new era, where society is heavily populated by AIs already today, how, how do we bring those qualities to bear in that mixed society of humans and AIs rather than allowing fear and hatred and stronger emotions to be learned and propagated by the AIs. So in this context, I wonder what your perception or perspective actually is when it comes to the term artificial, when we talk about intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I mean that in the way that I have the impression that when we call artificial intelligence artificial 
Of course, it means it's not natural. But at the same time, you could also get the impression that it is not equal <clears throat> or mm -hmm. is not is not because it's just artificial. It's not real. This could be an interpretation. And this is also when I talk to people and hear people talk about artificial intelligence. This is also something, it seems to me, that gives them some safety because it's not real. So it cannot be also a real threat. I don't necessarily believe that artificial intelligence is the ultimate threat or something. Mm -hmm. But I, I believe it's important how we go forth, mm -hmm. the way we program it. So what, what's, what's your take when, when it comes to the term artificial? Do you think it is the proper term when we talk about this type of intelligence? Well, sure, I, I actually do, and, and here's why. You are an artificial intelligence. Look at the Oxford definition of artificial. I, it, it is pretty close to word for word, made or created by human beings, roughly as a copy of something occurring naturally. So pretty much I think we can agree that you would not exist unless you were made by human beings. Uh, and that you were made rough as a rough copy of something that occurred naturally. And since obviously you're intelligent, by definition, you're an artificial intelligence, and, and we all are. So I think it's actually a very appropriate term. Okay. But, but this is a, a perspective that most people don't take as you do, of course, because most people don't consider your, themselves as artificial intelligences. Yes, I'm working this to change that. What's that? <laughs> I'm working yeah, to change okay. that. Yeah, yeah, I see. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, but I mean, it, it. you could then also say, if you turn it around, that artificial intelligence, the computer-based artificial intelligence, might be in a way similar to, to human intelligence, or what we call natural intelligence. Yeah, indeed. I, I think it. we're getting closer and closer to models in the field of AI that are uh, getting more natural. We're still quite a distance off, but I think that for AI to progress, it, it has to get more natural. We can, you know, AIs cannot be mindless. They'll never be intelligent that way. Today's AIs, because they're mindless, they require exponential amounts of data, right? And so people have, have confused AI with big data. Um, if you're going to process big data, you also need, you know, exponential amounts of computation power, which is why you have these enormous farms of, of uh, CPUs and GPUs these days. Um, but when we look at a human brain, you know, it's being powered by less electricity than a 100 watt electric light bulb. You don't need that much computation or that much data if you have human level intelligence. A, true AI is actually small data to be able to make those intelligent generalizations from the same amount of small data that a three-year-old kid learns from. Uh, so there, it is inevitable that progress in AI will drive us closer to natural intelligence. Okay. And is there a time frame that you personally believe is realistic when it will occur? 
I am always reluctant to say this because one of the terrible things about the field of AI is that it has a long history of always predicting that the problem would be solved in 20 years. And so if I say the problem will be solved in 20 years, then 20 years later, people will still be saying that. That said, progress has been incredible. You know, going back from... Uh, uh, say about 30 years ago when I was uh, finishing my PhD uh, and still fighting the battle against good old-fashioned AI, which was, you know, hand-coded logic rules. Uh, we have made enormous progress in what AI can do today. It's, you know, for people back then, what we are doing today would be mind-blowing. And... I have no doubt that that will continue to be the case. Okay. So maybe let me rephrase. Do you believe it will be in less than 200 years? Yes. So I have another question I'm really interested in. Your work on the coronavirus prevention was all over the media. Even President Obama retweeted an article where your statements were in there. Please give us some background. Oh, so this was something that happened, you know, like, like many people, obviously, we've been really struggling with how do we, how do we deal with the horrible effects of the coronavirus? And because I have joint appointments uh, at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and at Berkeley, I see, you know, very regularly what's going on both in the East and the West. And by February, it was really alarming me that Hong Kong was paying attention to the WHO warnings and the warnings from China, and it was already locking down. In January already, there was immense amounts of planning for what happens on February 1st when the semester was supposed to begin. Should we not physically open up? And, and indeed, we never opened up physically. We, we converted to all online teaching the entire semester. And in, in, by mid-February, it was really alarming to me that not only was that discussion not really happening seriously in the West, in the US or in Europe, but even, you know, face mask wearing was not being discussed. Hong Kong already, you know, literally 99% of the population masked up. You, if you, I could not go into town not wearing a mask without hearing about it and getting dirty looks and, you know, because you're not doing your part to prevent spreading your possible COVID viruses to other people around you. It was not just about protecting yourself. It was about protecting those around you, the community around you. But when you looked at the WHO data, when you looked at, you know, other data sets, Johns Hopkins or whatever, even though they were listing which countries had social distancing and which countries had testing and contact tracing, they didn't even bother listing which countries had masking. And this was alarming to me because masking costs far less than testing and tracing and many other measures. There is no more evidence for social distancing than there is for masking. And, and so we formed a team rapidly in late February with not only uh, me at Hong Kong at Berkeley, but also with London and Paris and Helsinki and Estonia, uh, Tallinn, across disciplines, from everything from medical doctor 
in London on the front lines of treating COVID, to economists in Paris, to someone who's actually in uh, senior advisor to the ministry in Finland, looking at public policy, and a computational biologist out of Cambridge. And so we, we, we really looking broadly at this, we built two new theoretical models. I built an AI-inspired model that was combining agent-based modeling from the long tradition in AI of, you know, you have intelligent agents walking about and interacting when they meet each other to do the predictive modeling. And I, I made it highly visual so that uh, you could actually see these agents walking around. You could just take your browser and go straight there and play with it yourself if you like. And you could set your own assumptions about how many people are infected and how many people there are and how effective your masks are at blocking transmission of viruses versus blocking absorption from other people into uh, your system when you inhale. And, and you can see what happens. And so I made this four-minute video to explain as a tutorial how to use that. The video got uh, a huge amount of interest and led to you know a, a quote cover story on Vanity Fair that really raised uh, a lot of awareness uh, amongst European and North American states. And basically, we found that if you need 80 or 90 percent of the population to wear face masks, and you need to, them to do it fast before the virus spreads to too much of the population. If only half the population wears masks, it has almost zero impact. And the reason the visual simulation is so good is because that's counterintuitive for most people. Most people think if, if half the population are wearing masks, then it'll stop half the infections. And that's simply not true, it turns out, because of the exponential behavior of virus spread. Half the population wearing masks has almost zero effect. 80 to 90% is needed in order to have significant impact and if you do that and you, you know, combine it with other sensible measures, social distancing, you do need testing and tracing, then you can control the spread long enough for the scientists to develop the vaccines and the treatments uh, and prevent the hospitals from getting overloaded. Otherwise, we create thousands of unnecessary deaths a day. And so that project was a really cool application of various concepts from AI and computer science to tackle the, the social problem right now that is urgent upon us, that we're still grappling with, of how to uh, save as many lives as possible, how to be able to exit from extreme lockdowns without risking lives in an excessive way. In Hong Kong, because we put on masks really early, we have never had to have a strict lockdown. The restaurants have never been closed. We can go out and shop. We, are, we do sensible social distancing and we wear masks. And we have not had to, and, and, and to, to this day, we have had a grand total of four deaths. You're talking about a, a place with a population of seven and a half million, we, approximately New York City. And so... You know, and in total, we've only had a couple of hundred local transmission cases. Almost all of our ca uh, cases came from imported cases from people coming back from Europe or the U.S. or other places imported who got, you know, tested and, and quarantined. And so I think there are a lot of things in we're talking about AI ethics, right? There are a lot of things that we can do with AI 
to really have a positive impact on society as a whole. And that's an excellent example. That's very interesting. And there, there's a website up where you can absolutely at yes. What's go the the best place to start is that explainer video. It's only four minutes long, and you can find it easily at dek.ai. That's my name okay. <laughs> with a dot yes. in it. Slash yeah. mask video. So dek.ai slash mask video. Okay. All right. And I'll also put it into the show notes so people Super. can... Super. Yeah. Uh, in in the video description, there are links to the rest of it. There's a website with all the resources. It's dek.ai slash masks for all, number four. There are There's a white paper that is highly visual and easy to read. There's a research paper. There are a number of other related videos, list of news stories uh, from around the world. Okay. And um, I'm very much interested in the topic, as you also talked about before, ethics and artificial intelligence. Part of my studies was also philosophy. And when I talk about artificial intelligence, mostly from the philosophical point of view. Mm. And um, reading the example of AlphaGo Zero, I, I got the impression like once the artificial intelligence only needs the rules, then it's really important which rules we give or program into the artificial intelligence. And, and, and then my personal response is, I mean, there's the three ro rules of robotics, of course. Mm -hmm. And then I, I go a step further, not just me, a lot of people do to say, well, we, maybe we have to look at uh, big religions to see what the rules are that we should program into artificial intelligence. So my question is not now if you believe if that's true or not. My question goes rather in the direction of, of do you think it makes a difference if we program ethical rules into the artificial intelligence and then it's a black box and uh, we don't know what happens? Because, for example, when I talked to Roman Jampolski, the way I understood him at least was it doesn't make a real difference because the moment it reaches superintelligence. What's your perspective on that? Do you think it makes a difference which type of ethical rules, so to say, we program into the artificial intelligence or when it come when once it becomes superintelligence it will do its own thing anyways. It doesn't matter what we program into it beforehand. I don't even think it's possible to program it in. You know, honestly The kinds of systems that you can program ethical rules into are not even true AI. Uh, the, they're very, very simple systems. And you know, today, there's a tendency, you know, it's a marketing tendency for everybody to label what they're building as AI. <laughs> It might be just some if-then rules. Real AI is machine, it includes learning capability. The, the machines are learning in the same way that human children learn. And the three laws of robotics don't really make any sense in that context because uh, even when you have only three rules, they're constantly in contradiction to each other. You know, Isaac Asimov wrote dozens of stories, highly entertaining stories, and every single one of them was based on a situation where, gee, these two rules create uh, a logical conflict. Uh, that 
And, and imagine now if you try to write an AI system that has several hundred ethical roles in them. I mean, the, the robot will just be paralyzed because it'll constantly be in a state of contradiction. Um, so how do human children manage this? They, they learn, right? Uh, from childhood, you're taught values, you're taught principles, but you also learn trade-offs and, and you learn the difficult situations. And it's highly cultural. You know, there are a few, there are a few ethical rules that are probably universal, like the golden rule. You know, almost every culture uh, has some form of the idea that you should, you should treat others the, the way that you would like them to treat you. But other than that, different cultures have, you know, a lot of variation. And the language, you know, one of the things that makes machine translation hard is it turns out that the language encodes this very deeply. So some of the earliest words that children learn already encapsulate highly culture-dependent values. And you can't even translate three-year-old language because of that. It's, it's really tough to do. And, and because of that, we have, we have a situation where the ethical rules that an AI would have to operate with would be just as culture dependent, just as contextual, just as shades of gray as a human. It would be learning those things. It would not be something that you can program in. But, you know, modern AI by definition learns. And so you can no more, you cannot program ethical rules into a real AI any more than you can hardwire them into a child, right? There's no way you can unscrew the head of a child and <laughs> connect in, solder in some logical rules. There's no place to connect them in that architecture. Uh, modern AI is the same. So we are going to have to, as a society, come to grips with the fact that we have to teach our AIs in the same way that we teach the humans. What are the ethics? What are the values? And we have to set examples because they're learning from us. They're, you know, the AIs at Google, the AIs at Facebook, the AIs at Twitter, the AIs at Apple, the AIs at Microsoft, Amazon, they are learning by watching what you do. You are the training data. You are the example. You are the one teaching the ethics and the values to the AIs. And we all are. And ultimately, just as with humans, there is no substitute for the fact that all of us bear collective responsibility for teaching the AIs in the same way that we do with humans. This is one of those things that, because AI has come upon society so rapidly, we are not wrapping our heads around this. We are still thinking about machines as dumb, passive, mechanical tools as, as slaves. Uh, and we don't realize that everything changes when machines actually have opinions and thoughts and, and can influence our opinions and thoughts. Uh, the metaphor of treating machines as mechanical slaves that we can control and program is a dangerously obsolete metaphor that we need to get humanity to throw away as fast as we can.
Okay. So if I understand you correctly, in a way, you, it means that we as a humanity need to become a role model for the artificial intelligences as parents need to be role models or are role models yeah. for the children. And as a parent, you cannot tell your children to not to this or not today. Or maybe on the short term, you can, but you cannot implement it. And in the same way, we as a humanity cannot implement certain rules and paradigms into artificial intelligences, but rather lead by example, which then, if I understand it correctly, the way you say it, means that we actually have to perhaps even make a quantum leap in our development as humanity so that uh, artificial intelligence will develop in a healthy way? Absolutely, yeah. And that, that's what my TEDx Xi'an talk was. It, it was asking, challenging the audience to ask, how, how, how is your parenting? And it turns out that when you actually dive in and look at it, we are violating pretty much every <laughs> principle of good parenting that we all believe in. And, and that's why AI-powered tech today is, is tearing apart our societies. If, if we all abandon responsibility for raising human children, the society will fall apart. And that is what we're doing now with our artificial children, and that's what's so dangerous. Okay. So what do you think are then the paradigms that need to be challenged in the field of artificial intelligence, but perhaps it's even broader than artificial intelligence for us as humanity to develop in a healthy way and to develop artificial children in a healthy way? Yeah, I, to me, that is the paradigm that we need to uh, challenge and to shift. This is a change that is already upon us. Like, this happened while we weren't watching. It snuck up behind us. And we are still living as if we were in the 20th century. Uh, we are still, you know, pretending that things can go on. Uh, a lot of AI ethics is still, I think, unconsciously trapped in a mindset of thinking, how can we preserve the status quo in society? How can we design AIs so that it doesn't change the structure of society? And I think that that is impossible, even with weak AIs today we are seeing how impossible it is. That even if we just look at the news from the last week, all over, you know, Twitter, finally deciding that they are going to slap labels on what they consider to be dangerous or false statements, even from a US president. And the pushback on that. Facebook still refusing to do that. We, we are already today living in a situation where we are grappling with the consequences of the fact that the AIs are already deciding, based on imitating humans, learning from human behaviors, 
which ideas to spread and which ideas to censor, to filter out. Right? Uh, uh, not, you know, I, I don't want to like try to be sensitive about the wording here, but an AI that is working for a social media or search engine company, its job is to decide what are the top 10 or top 20 posts or hits to display to you. You don't get to see the other billion. 99.99% of people never look past the first 20 options. That is, in reality, de facto, algorithmic censorship. And, and there's no way to get around that, right? You have a lot of useless discussions saying, oh, AI shouldn't be censoring. It's impossible because you cannot read a billion posts, right? That algorithm is going to decide what you don't see. And so AIs are already, by necessity, the, the uh, deciders of what you do and don't see. And how we teach those AIs is not a question that we can continue to avoid if we want our societies to survive. That is a major paradigm shift that needs to happen, not just among tech developers. That is a major paradigm shift that needs to happen for every member of 21st century societies. Okay. Okay. And so is there anything more you would like to elaborate on the structures that you talked about that how it is structurally affecting us? So you said we the way we approach AI we want to maintain the social status quo. So do you have an idea which direction it ideally goes, how artificial intelligence will fundamentally change? Is there a utopia that you see, or is it just that you can say, well, the way it develops now is not healthy, and we need to rethink, And but this needs to be a, a creative process where there is no obvious uh, solution yet? What's... So first of all, I think the concepts of utopia and uh, and maybe dystopia as well are are those are like fairy tales, metaphors from certain cultural traditions. They tend to be absolutist traditions. Um, they tend to, you know, the same kinds of traditions that give rise to the idea of universal truths or, you know, that sort of absolutes. Um, those are myths. They don't exist in the real world. The real world is a process. It's a continual evolving flow. Uh, and I think the sooner we realize that, the better. Uh, it's a convenient metaphor. We can talk about utopia versus dystopia, but we, we shouldn't get too hung up on that because it's not real. Uh, what is real is how we uh, evolve our cultures, how we evolve our civilizations, and whether we avoid extinction. What is real is 
how much can we do away with uh, human suffering, which is still uh, at unethically large levels given the wealth of our planet today. Um, so I think we need to focus on the fact that it's inevitable that human intelligence and artificial intelligence is merging. It, that is already happening today. Half my brain is already in my phone over here. I, I can no longer remember numbers. I used to be legendary at doing it. I have no sense of spatial orientation anymore. I mean, it was bad enough to begin with, but now I'm basically lost without my GPS. And, and to me, yeah, there's a little bit of nostalgia. Oh, it was nice to be able to do that. But it's also incredible freedom because I have offloaded dreary tasks to the machine, freeing up so much of my cognitive load capacity for creative things and other aspects of, of thinking that would be great. And this, this um, synergy, this, this coupling of processing between my primitive artificial intelligence is here in my phone and my uh, human intelligence is the tip of the iceberg. We are going to rapidly see in the coming decade various forms of AR, of augmented reality, that will make the interface with my phone screen look clumsy. It will become much more instantaneous. What I want, what I'm thinking, what I'm retrieving, with you know just what's in my field of vision or in my ears uh and that's before we even get to eventually inevitably brain implants um so all of this is going to happen and there's going to be older generations that resist kicking and screaming and say oh my god we're losing what it means to be human the younger generations aren't going to care at all let's be honest right the kids of today are doing things with whatever TikTok and <laughs> everything else that you know yeah the older generations can can yell until they're blue in the face and it's not going to change what the younger generations uh do with the technology because it is freeing and 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 the natural tendency to be nostalgic and to 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 you know sort of sentimentally want to hold on to what we were familiar with when, from when we were kids is just not enough weight for the additional power of what the AI and the tech is able to give to the creativity of the younger generations. So acknowledging that and using that to rethink how we need to reform our societies is essential you know like so i'm american and the founding fathers in the u.s 250 ish years ago you know thought long and hard about how to define define the the constitutional principles and and they did a lot of what we today would call systems thinking right trying to figure out all of the interplay in a complex dynamic system and how to keep balances and it you know sort of worked for a while but it still led to an awful bloody civil war and the effects of which we still are grappling with even this week in the news as everybody is saying 
and the situation is being made much worse spiral you know, spiraling out of control by all the amplification on ai driven tech uh on social media etc and and so you know once again it is time to rethink the way our founding fathers thought in the us and, and the same parallel in many other countries as well it is it is actually long past time for us to rethink in a modern era with AI at the core of so much transfer of knowledge and information. What are the complex system dynamics? We cannot just blindly assume that principles defined 250 years ago or even 50 years ago still apply. They don't. It's a brave new world. And we need to do that rethinking. We, I, you know, I don't think we can survive doing that through a, another revolution. The weapons of that we have today are far too dangerously destructive. We're not just talking, you know, unreliable muskets. Uh, we really cannot afford a revolution in a hard sense to do this. We we have to raise enough public awareness to be able to understand the absolute need to reframe the founding principles of society in an AI era. So my last question is really, when you imagine yourself looking at, back at your life from your deathbed and everything you've done, looking back, what's the impact that you want to have had on your life and on your humanity i would i would just like to have made contributions to get humans to overcome their their natural unconscious biases against having greater understanding between different peoples between different cultures between different neighborhoods our biggest danger with all of this AI-driven amplification of fear and, and hatred and divisiveness is our own natural tendencies to divide everything into our in-groups and our out-groups. That is a process that dehumanizes the out-groups. And if we're going to struggle with a question of what AI, what art, what the artificial does to our society, then we need to actually really focus on those biases that cause us to dehumanize too much of our society. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time and the interview. Thank you. So it's a pleasure. It was a pleasure for me. Have a good day then. Thank you for staying tuned for this edition of Challenging Paradigm X. If you like this episode with Dekai, feel free to share it with your community so Dekai's message gets spread even further. In the show notes, you'll find links to his work and his multiple TEDx talks. Please hit subscribe and rate my podcast if you like it. I'd be also glad if you write me a review. You can support this podcast through Patreon. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact me. 
next week we are up with another edition of Challenging Paradigm X. So until then, I wish you a great week and say ciao.